Chapter 16 of The Red Room by August Strindberg Translated by Ellie Schlesner Recording by William Peck This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 In the White Mountains One afternoon in August, Falk was again sitting in the garden on Moses Height, but he was alone, and he had been alone during the whole summer. He was turning over in his mind all that had happened to him during the three months which had passed since his last visit, when his heart was brimful of hope, courage, and strength. He felt old, tired, indifferent. He had seen the houses at his feet from the inside, and on every occasion his expectations had been disappointed. He had seen humanity under many aspects, aspects which are only revealed to the eye of the poor man's doctor or the journalist, with the only difference that the journalist generally sees men as they wish to appear, and a doctor as they are. He had every opportunity of studying man as a social animal in all possible guises. He had been present at parliamentary meetings, church councils, general meetings of shareholders, philanthropic meetings, police court proceedings, festivals, funerals, public meetings of working men. Everywhere he had heard big words and many words, words never used in daily intercourse, a particular species of words which mean nothing, at least not what they ought to mean. This had given him a one-sided conception of humanity. He could see in man nothing but the deceitful social animal, a creature he is bound to be because civilization forbids open war. His aloofness blinded him to the existence of another animal, an animal which, between glass and wall, is exceedingly amiable, as long as it is not exasperated and which is ready to come out with all its failings and weaknesses when there are no witnesses. He was blind to it, and that was the reason why he had become embittered. But the worst of it all was he had lost his self-respect, and that had happened without his having committed a single action of which he need have been ashamed. He had been robbed of it by his fellow creatures, and it had not been a very difficult thing to do. He had been slighted everywhere, and how could he, whose self-confidence had been destroyed in his early youth, respect the person whom everybody despised. With many a bitter pang he saw that the conservative journalists, that was to say men who defended and upheld everything that was wrong, or if they could not defend it, or at least left it untouched, were treated with the utmost courtesy. He was despised, not so much as a pressman, as in his character of advocate of all those who were downtrodden and hardly dealt with. He had lived through times of cruel doubt. For instance, in reporting the general meeting of shareholders of the Marine Insurance Society, Triton, he had used the word swindle. In replying to his report, the Grey Bonnet had published a long article proving so clearly that the society was a national, patriotic, philanthropic institution that he had almost felt convinced of having been wrong and the thought of having recklessly played with the reputation of his fellow-citizens was a nightmare to him for many days to come. He was now in a state of mind which alternated between fanaticism and callousness. His next impulse would decide the direction his development was to take. His life had been so dreary during the summer that he welcomed with malicious pleasure every rainy day, and it was a comparatively pleasant sensation to watch leaves rustling along the garden paths. He sat absorbed in grimly humorous meditations on life and its purposes, when one lean, bony hand was laid on his shoulder, and another clutched his arm. 
He felt as if death had come to take him at his word. He looked up and started. Before him stood Yigberg, pale as a corpse, emaciated and looking at him with those peculiarly washed-out eyes which only starvation produces. "'Good morning, Falk,' he whispered almost inaudibly, and his whole body seemed to rattle. "'Good morning, Yigberg,' replied Falk, suddenly brightening up. "'Sit down and have a cup of coffee with me. How are you? You look as if you've been lying under the ice.' "'Oh, I've been so ill, so ill.' "'You seem to have had as jolly a summer as I had.' "'Have you had a hard time, too?' asked Yigberg, a faint hope that it had been the case brightening his yellow face. "'I can only say, thank God that the cursed summer is over. It might be winter all year round for all I care. Not only that one is suffering all the time, but one also has to watch others enjoying themselves. I never put a foot out of town. Did you?' "'I haven't seen a pine tree since Lundell left Lillian's in June.' And why should one want to see pine trees? It isn't absolutely essential, nor is a pine tree anything extraordinary. But that one can't have the pleasure, that's where the sting comes in. Oh, well, never mind. It's clouding over in the east. Therefore, it will rain tomorrow. And when the sun shines again, it will be autumn. Your health? Yigberg looked at the punch as if it were poison. But he drank it nevertheless. But you wrote that beautiful story of the guardian angel, or the Marine Insurance Society Triton for Smith, remarked Falk. Didn't it go against your convictions? Convictions? I have no convictions. Haven't you? No, only fools have convictions. Have you no morals, Yigberg? No. Whenever a fool has an idea, it comes to the same thing, whether it is original or not. He calls it his conviction clings to it and boasts of it, not because it is a conviction, but because it is his conviction. So far as the Marine Insurance Society is concerned, I believe it's a swindle. I'm sure it injures many men, the shareholders at all events, but it's a splendid thing for others, the directors and employees, for instance. So it does a fair amount of good after all. Have you lost all sense of honor, old friend? one must sacrifice everything on the altar of duty i admit that the first and foremost duty of man is to live to live at any price divine as well as human law demands it one must never sacrifice honor both laws as i said demand a sacrifice of everything they compel a poor man to sacrifice his so-called honor it's cruel but you can't blame the poor man for it your theory of life is anything but cheerful how could it be otherwise? That's true. But to talk of something else, I had a letter from Renhelm. I'll read it to you if you like. I heard he had gone on the stage. Yes, and he doesn't seem to be having a good time of it. Yigberg took a letter from his breast pocket, put a piece of sugar into his mouth, and began to read. If there is a hell in a life after this, which is very doubtful, the lads become a free thinker. It cannot be a worse place than this. I've been engaged for two months, but it seems to me like two years. A devil, formerly a wheelwright, now theatrical manager, holds my fate in his hand and treats me in such a way that three times a day I feel tempted to run away. 
but he has so carefully drafted the penal clauses in the agreement that my flight would dishonor my parents' name. I have walked on every single night, but I've never been allowed to open my lips yet. For twenty consecutive evenings I've had to smear my face with umber and wear a gypsy's costume, not a single piece of which fits me. The tights are too long, the shoes too large, the jacket is too short. An underdevil, called the prompter, takes good care that I don't exchange my costume for one more suitable, and, whenever I tried to hide myself behind the crowd, which is made up of the director manufacturer's factory hands, it opens and pushes me forward to the footlights. If I look into the wings, my eyes fall on the underdevil, standing there, grinning, and if I look at the house, I see Satan himself, sitting in a box, laughing. I seem to have been engaged for his amusement, not for the purpose of playing any parts. On one occasion I ventured to draw his attention to the fact that I ought to have practice in speaking parts, if I was ever going to be an actor. He lost his temper, and said that one must learn to crawl before one can learn to walk. I replied that I could walk. He said it was a lie, and asked me whether I imagined that the art of acting, the most beautiful and difficult of all arts, required no training. When I said that that was exactly what I did imagine, and that I was impatiently waiting for the beginning of my training, he told me I was an ignorant puppy, and he would kick me out. When I remonstrated, he asked me whether I looked upon the stage as a refuge for impecunious use. My reply was a frank, unconditional glad yes. He roared that he would kill me. This is the present state of my affairs. I feel that my soul is flickering out like a towel candle in a drought, and I shall soon believe that evil will be victorious, even though it be concealed in clouds, as the catechism has it. But the worst of all is that I have lost all respect for this art, which was the dream and the love of my boyhood. Can I help it when I see that men and women without education or culture, spurred on by vanity and recklessness, completely lacking in enthusiasm and intelligence, are able to play in a few months' time character parts, historical parts, fairly well, without having a glimmer of knowledge of the time in which they move, or the important part which the person they represent played in history? It is a slow murder, and the association with this mob which keeps me down. Some of the members of the company have come into collision with various paragraphs of the penal code, is making of me what I've never been, an aristocrat. The pressure of the cultured can never weigh as heavily on the uncultured. There is but one ray of light in this darkness. I am in love. She is pure as gold among all this dross. Of course she, too, is persecuted and slowly murdered, just as I am, since she refused the stage manager's infamous proposals. She is the only woman with a living spirit among all these beasts, wallowing in filth, and she loves me with all her soul. We are secretly engaged. I am only waiting for the day when I shall have one success to make her my wife. But when will that be? We have often thought of dying together, but hope, treacherous hope, has always beguiled us into continuing this misery. To see my innocent love burning with shame when she is forced to wear improper costumes is more than I can bear. But I will drop this unpleasant subject. Ollie and Lundell wish to be remembered. Ollie is very much changed. He has drifted into a new kind of philosophy which tears down everything and turns all things upside down. It sounds very jolly and sometimes seems true. 
but it must be a dangerous doctrine if carried out. I believe he owes these ideas to one of the actors here, an intelligent and well-informed man, who lives a very immoral life. I like and hate him at the same time. He is a queer chap, fundamentally good, noble, and generous, a man who will sacrifice himself for his friends. I cannot fix on any special vice, but he is immoral, and a man without morality is a blackguard, don't you think so? I must stop, my angel, my good spirit, is coming. There is a happy hour in store for me. All evil spirits will flee, and I shall be a better man. Remember me to Falk, and tell him to think of me when life is hard on him. Your friend, R. Well, what do you think of that? It is the old story of the struggle of the wild beast. I'll tell you what, Yigberg, I believe one has to be very unscrupulous if one wants to get on in the world. Try it. You may not find it so easy. Are you still doing business with Smith? No, unfortunately not. And you? I've seen him on the subject of my poems. He has bought them ten crowns to folio, and he can now murder me in the same way as the wheelwright is murdering Renhelm. And I'm afraid something of the sort is going to happen, for I haven't heard a word about them. He was so exceedingly friendly that I expect the worst. If only I knew what's going on. But what's the matter with you? You're as white as a sheet. The truth is, replied Yigberg, clutching the railings, all I've had to eat these last two days has been five lumps of sugar. I'm afraid I'm going to faint. If food will set you right, I can help you. Fortunately, I have some money. Of course it will set me right, whispered Yigberg faintly. But it was not so. When they were sitting in the dining room and food was served to them, Yigberg grew worse, and Falk had to take him to his room, which fortunately was not very far off. The house was an old one-story house built of wood. It had climbed onto a rock and looked as if it had suffered from hip disease. It was spotted like a leper. A long time ago it was going to be painted, but when the old paint had been burned off, nothing more was done to it. It looked in every respect miserable, and it was hard to believe the legend of the sign of the fire insurance office rusting on the wall, namely, that a phoenix should rise from the ashes. At the base of the house grew dandelions, nettles, and roadweed, the faithful companions of poverty. Sparrows were bathing in the scorching sand and scattering it about. Pale-faced children with big stomachs, looking as if they were being brought up on ninety percent water, were making dandelion chains and trying to embitter their sad lives by annoying and insulting each other. Falk and Yigberg climbed a rotten, creaking staircase and came to a large room. It was divided into three parts by chalk lines. The first and second divisions served a joiner and a cobbler as workshops. The third was exclusively devoted to the more intimate pursuits of family life. Whenever the children screamed, which happened once in every quarter of an hour, the joiner flew into a rage and burst out scolding and swearing. The cobbler remonstrated with quotations from the Bible. The joiner's nerves were so shattered by these constant screams, the uneasing punishments and scoldings, that five minutes after partaking of the snuff of reconciliation offered by the cobbler, he flew into a fresh temper in spite of his firm resolve to be patient. Consequently, he was nearly all day long in a red-hot fury. But the worst passages were when he asked the woman, 
why these internal females need to bring so many children into the world then the woman in question came on the tapis and his antagonist gave him as good as he brought falk and yitberg had to pass this room to gain the latter's garret and although both of them went on tiptoe they wakened two of the children immediately the mother began humming a lullaby thereby interrupting a discussion between cobbler and joiner naturally the latter had a fit hold your tongue woman hold your tongue yourself can't you let the children sleep to hell with the children are they my children am i to suffer for other people's immorality am i an immoral man what have i any children hold your tongue i say or i'll throw my plane at your head i say master master began the cobbler you shouldn't talk like that of the children god sends the little ones into the world that's a lie cobbler the devil sends them the devil and then the dissolute parents blame god you ought to be ashamed of yourselves master master you shouldn't use such language scripture tells us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the children oh indeed they have them in the kingdom of heaven have they how dare you talk like that shrilled the furious mother if you ever have any children of your own i shall pray that they may be lame and diseased i shall pray that they shall be blind and deaf and dumb i shall pray that they shall be sent to the reformatory and end on the gallows see if i won't do so for all i care you good-for-nothing hussy i'm not going to bring children in the world to see them living a dog's life you ought to be sent to the house of correction for bringing the poor things into this misery you are married you say well need you be immoral because you are married master master god sends the children it's a lie cobbler i read in a paper the other day that the damn potato is to blame for the large families of the poor don't you see the potato consists of two substances called oxygen and nitrogen whenever these substances occur in a certain quantity and proportion women become prolific but what is one to do asked the angry mother whom this interesting explanation had calmed down a little one shouldn't eat potatoes can't you see that but what is one to eat if not potatoes beefsteak woman steak and onions what isn't that good or steak a la chateaubriand do you know what that is what i saw in the fatherland the other day that a woman who had taken womb grain very nearly died as well as the baby what's that asked the mother pricking up her ears you'd like to know would you is it true that what you said about the womb grain asked the cobbler blinking his eyes ho ho that brings up your lungs and liver but there's a heavy penalty on it and that's as it should be is it as it should be asked the cobbler dully of course it is immorality must be punished and it's immoral to murder one's children children surely there's a difference replied the angry mother resignedly but where does the stuff you just spoke about come from master ha ha you want more children you hussy although you are a widow with five beware of the devil of a cobbler he's hard on women in spite of his piety a pinch of snuff cobbler there is really a herb then who said it was a herb did i say so no it's an organic substance let me tell you all substances nature contains about sixty are divided into organic and inorganic substances this one's latin name is cornuticus sicalius it comes from abroad for instance from the calabrian peninsula is it very expensive master asked the cobbler expensive ejaculated the joiner manipulating his plane as if it were a carbine it's awfully expensive falk had listened to the conversation with great interest now he started 
he had heard a carriage stopping underneath the window and the sound of two women's voices which seemed familiar to him this house looks all right does it said an older voice i think it looks dreadful i meant it looks all right for our purpose do you know driver whether any poor people are living in this house i don't know replied the driver but i'd stake my oath on it swearing is a sin so you had better not wait for us here while we go upstairs to do our duty i say eugenia hadn't we better first talk a little to the children down here said mrs homan to mrs falk lagging behind perhaps it would be just as well come here little boy what's your name albert answered a pale-faced little lad of six do you know jesus my laddie no answered the child with a laugh and put a finger into his mouth terrible said mrs falk taking out her notebook i better say parish of st catherine's white mountains profound spiritual darkness in the minds of the young i suppose darkness is the right word she turned to the little fellow and don't you want to know him no would you like a penny yes you should say please indescribably neglected but i succeeded by gentleness in awakening their better feelings what a horrible smell let's go eugenia implored mrs homan they went upstairs and entered the large room without knocking the joiner seized his plane and began planing a knotty board so that the ladies had to shout to make themselves heard is anybody here thirsting for salvation shouted mrs homan while mrs falk worked her scent spray so vigorously that the children began to cry with the smarting of their eyes are you offering us salvation lady asked the joiner interrupting his work where did you get it from perhaps there's charity to be had too and humiliation and pride you are a ruffian you will be damned answered mrs homan mrs falk made notes in her notebook he's all right she remarked is there anything else you'd like to say asked mrs homan we know the sort you are perhaps you'd like to talk to me about religion ladies i can talk on any subject have you ever heard of anything about the councils held at nicaea or the smalkotic articles we know nothing about that my good man why do you call me good scripture says nobody is good but god alone so you know nothing about the nicene council ladies how can you dare to teach others when you know nothing yourselves and if you want to dispense charity do it while i turn my back to you for true charity is given secretly practice on the children if you like they can't defend themselves but leave us in peace give us work and pay us a just wage and then you needn't run about like this a pinch of snuff cobbler shall i write great unbelief quite hardened evelyn asked mrs falk i should put impenitent dear what are you writing down ladies our sins surely your book's too small for that the outcome of the so-called working men's unions very good said mrs homan beware of working men's unions said the joiner for hundreds of years war has been made upon the kings but now we've discovered that the kings are not to blame the next campaign will be against all idlers who live on the work of others then we shall see something that's enough said the cobbler the angry mother whose eyes had been riveted on mrs falk during the whole scene took the opportunity of putting in a word excuse me but aren't you mrs falk she asked no answered the lady with an assurance that took even mrs homan's breath away but you're as like her as it's possible to be i knew her father roanoke who's now on the flagship that's all very nice but it doesn't concern us are there any other people in this house who need salvation no said the joiner 
they don't need salvation they need food and clothes or better still work much work and well-paid work but the ladies had better not go and see them for one of them is down with smallpox smallpox screamed mrs homan and nobody said a word about it come along eugenia let's at once inform the police what a disgusting set of people they are but the children whose children are these answer said mrs falk holding up her pencil threateningly they're mine lady answered the mother but your husband where's your husband disappeared said the joiner we'll set the police on his track he shall be sent to the penitentiary things must be changed here i said it was a good house evelyn won't the lady sit down asked the joiner it's so much easier to keep up a conversation sitting down we've no chairs but that doesn't matter we've no beds either they went for taxes for the lighting of the street so that you need not go home from the theatre in the dark we've no gas as you can see for yourselves they went in payment of the water rate so that your servants should be safe running up and down stairs the water's not laid on here they went towards the keeping up of the hospitals so that your sons will not be laid up at home when come away eugenia for god's sakes this is unbearable i agree with you ladies it is unbearable said the joiner and a day will come when things will be worse on that day we shall come down from the white mountains with a great noise like a waterfall and ask for the return of our beds ask we shall take them and you shall lie on wooden benches as i've had to do and eat potatoes until your stomachs are as tight as a drum and you feel as if you had undergone the torture by water as we but the ladies had fled leaving behind them a pile of pamphlets ugh what a beastly smell of eau de cologne it smells of prostitutes said the joiner a pinch of snuff cobbler he wiped his forehead with his blue apron and took up his plane while the others reflected silently yigberg who had been asleep during the whole of the scene now awoke and made ready to go out again with falk once more mrs homan's voice floated through the open window what did she mean when she said your father was on the flagship your father is a captain isn't he that's what he's called it's the same thing weren't they an insolent crowd i'll never go there again but it will make a fine report to the restaurant Hasselbacken driver End of chapter sixteen